Welcome to Resi Talks. I'm Emma Rossa, Residential Editor at EG, and in this episode, I take a look at the world of airspace development. New policy, ongoing demand for affordable housing, and lack of land in city centres means many are now turning to building on top of buildings. This is not the same as ground-up development, and there are a number of challenges in this emerging specialism. In this podcast, I am joined by Councillor Stephanie Cryan, Cabinet Member for Council Homes and Homelessness at Southwark Council. Arthur Kay, founder and chief executive of Skyroom, and Philippa Pronge, chief operating officer at Apex Airspace. We discuss the potential for airspace development and what is needed for this to provide housing at scale. After a lot of buzz last year, we're starting to see more plans coming to the fore ahead of a rise in rooftop development. Excuse the pun. A year ago, when the government created the new permitted development for two-storey extensions, um, that was actually one of the most read articles on EG. So clearly people want to know more about rooftop development um, and there seems to be a huge scope for expansion. We reported last week, but Apex previously estimated that this sort of development could provide 180,000 homes in London alone. And then last week, we also saw the formation of the Association of Rooftop and Airspace Development, ARAD, to guide the sector. So it seems that the industry is really gearing up for growth. Um, So to kick off, Philippa, what are you seeing in the potential and how has the market advanced over the past year? Like you say, there's definitely a lot more interest in it. And I would say, you know, the amount of inbound um, inquiries and and traffic has has definitely increased over the last six months. Um, And I think it's people are becoming more and more aware, obviously, of our our lack of available land, um, so to speak, and then the opportunity that this opens up. And I think, you know, with carbon net zero coming in um, and all that kind of thing, it's very much how we this can work with that to achieve the goals especially for housing associations and local authorities when there's not an abundance of cash there to help achieve these targets this is a way of of really helping them and lots of local authorities and housing associations are sat on you know extensive amounts of housing stock most of which is incredibly well suited to airspace development and you know it is predominantly within you know the M25, where, you know, there is a high need for affordable homes and the price of land is is not getting any cheaper. And rooftop development helps them maximise their assets and then increases the value of those buildings at the same time. And this is done by the enhancements which are carried out to the existing buildings. Um, Sadly, with with Grenfell, obviously, the tragedy there, all the fire regulations which have come about as a result of that, this is one way of helping buildings get up to code, sorting out some of the cladding issues and lots of the developments we carry out as part of the, the standard offering, I suppose, is increasing the, the fire protection within the building. So therefore, you know, putting fire doors in with, with longer protection times. Lots of work at the moment is done on lobbies, how they can be installed in the building. And, and one of the issues we're finding, I don't know what, what Arthur and, and Steph are finding, is that the resistance from the existing residents to installing lobbies and getting their buildings up to code is is, is quite strong at times. Um, and it's trying to get that message across that actually we're, we're helping your building become much safer. But obviously, some of the changes that are made are, are not that popular with, with the residents. I guess a lot of people might think, you know, there's a fear of, oh, my God, they're going to build on top of my home. But what was the reality? I think everyone on this call would agree that community engagement is central to the success or failure of this sector as a whole. I think historically it's something that 
the built environment sector generally, but developers specifically have paid lip service to it, but have never really engaged in a sincere long term um, way about it. And it is a central part of the model because all, it's, it's important to all development, but it's even more acute when it comes to airspace or rooftop development, because often these are done to existing buildings with residents in situ. And whether that be a commercial building or a residential building, you have existing occupants who um, need to be worked with incredibly closely. And so we really see this as two sides of that um, coin. The first is how do you minimize the negatives? And I think, again, everyone should be upfront that there are, it's not, no one's going to be kind of like, you know, cheering from the rooftops about this being, you know, there is just going to be a level of disruption. And so how can you find ways to minimize that level of disruption in the negatives? So things like using modular systems, which mean that you can rapidly install homes rather than be on site and scaffolding buildings for years at a time. And then how can you find tangible benefits for residents and local communities so as they can, in turn, both, both feel that they're part of this development, but also actually putting real benefits into the building, um, whether that's improving fire safety, whether that's improving communal areas, whether that's increasing immunity space, whether that's using it as a chance to retrofit a number of their existing apartments and bring them up to code and standard. So a number of different ways um, that one can approach that. But it always does start with conversations with the residents and understanding what they actually want rather than what we on this call think they want, because um, it's rare that those two actually line up as well as one might think. I absolutely agree. I think, you know, the engagement with, with residents is the most important part of this. Um, so in Southwark, we're, we're in a London local authority. And at the moment, we've got over 15,000 households on our housing waiting list. So we, we, we've made a really bold commitment to build new homes. Um, but obviously, we don't have the space on um, on the ground everywhere to build them. So we took the, the decision to do airspace development on that. But it has to be done with the residents permission with the residents agreement because it is quite intrusive if you're living on a block and the works are being done around you it's really really intrusive so we have a wide range of consultations so we will do full consultation with everybody on the estate that we're building on or, or intend to build on and then we set up resident project groups so that those people who want to can get a little bit more involved within the design process in what they want to see from it as well and we also tie that up with some wider estate improvements so not just the fire safety works or the works to the building itself but some wider estate improvements so it could be around community gardens it could be about new bin stalls um, or cycle hangers whatever the residents feel is important for them on their estate we'll wrap it up with that as well so we'll, we'll do it as a wider sort of in-state improvement piece as well so it's not just putting new homes on top of, of existing homes and then we also have a policy where we will allow those people who um, we have a local lettings policy so that the new homes that we build at the moment up to 50 percent at least 50 percent of those will go to residents in housing need who live in that block or on, on that estate or within a defined area so they're able to stay in the communities and you know there's a very human cost of this because when you've got 15,000 people waiting for a new home you've got families who are living in, in severely overcrowded conditions who need to move into a home that, that, that works for them um, you've got people who may want to downsize you have people who may need to move because of medical needs so it helps free free that up and, and allows people to move there and, and stay within their local community as well. And what we're also saying with our rooftop developments is that if you live on the top floor at the moment, you can actually move into the top floor on the new development because some people do like living in the top floor. Um, so we give them that opportunity should they want to do as well. So it's all about that consultation. It's all about that discussion. And it's all about doing it with residents, not to them. 
Stephanie, where, yeah. where is Southwick on, in terms of the rooftop programme at the moment? Is this something that was launched in 2019? Is that correct? Yeah, so we've got at the moment, we've got 16 homes in the programme and nine have already been approved at, at various sites across the borough. Um, the one that we've got work happening on at the moment is actually in um, in my, the ward that I represent in Rotherai. That's, that's, that's just a coincidence, but, uh, uh, rather. but we, we've got a, a plan for them. We've got some more that we're hoping to come along in the future. So we're at various stages um, in, in that consultation process um, at the moment. But I do think it comes back to what Philippa and Arthur said, you know, people are resistant to it and, and understandably resistant to it. And that's why you really have to have those conversations. You really have to have a consultation, but also to look at what else can be provided, um, yeah. you know, on, on the estate to think like eyesores or things that they've wanted for so long to help deliver those as well for, for them. So I, I just think, you know, it is, it's really about keeping residents informed and, and bringing them on board with it. No, absolutely. And I think one of the things we're finding as well, I mean, we have a resident liaison officer that stays with the project right from the very beginning to, to the very end. And I think, as, as Steph quite rightly said, the first consultation, you have to be in listening mode. You can't go in with the fake on plea, this is what we're going to do to your building. And I think, especially since lockdown as well, the amenity space thing is, is really important and how you can upgrade that and make it better for everybody. And I think also what we're finding as well with one of the buildings we've got in site, which is actually in Southwark, um, but for Lambeth and Southwark Housing Association, is you know, upgrading the lighting, the security, the entranceways, the, the pathways around the building. Um, is really important to the existing residents. And I think what we're also doing is installing a lift because lots of these buildings didn't have lifts originally, which therefore means they can now offer accessible units to people which they haven't been able to do before, um, which is a real benefit to all of the residents. And I think it's looking at ways as to how you can be more creative with the amenity space now so people can use it, spend more time outside, feel safe and feel it's a place they actually want to be. I guess, would it be fair to say that the level of um, resident reaction um, or fear might be related to the scale of development as well? I mean, are you planning to put on two storeys or are you planning to put on a lot more? I, I don't know. Apex is one of the largest and most experienced in rooftop development. Philippa, what have you seen um, in terms of different types of schemes and also different boroughs? Yeah, um, there's a real mix, actually. Um, as you say, some boroughs are much more um, forthcoming with their rooftop development than, than others. And I think there's a real mix between, you know, we're doing some schemes where on the private side where we say building four. And I think where they're leaseholders rather than, than tenants, um, there's a difference there because you're bringing down the the cost of running the building, you know, if they're having to contribute to a service charge to, to, or having to pay for a new roof, you know, lots of people come to us because they need a new roof and this is their way of being able to afford it. Because as you know, with most Londoners, they're probably asset rich, but very cash poor. And, you know, we're replacing windows or we're installing balconies. So often their cash receipt for said airspace is actually the, the improvements to the building. And I think where lots of authorities struggle is where in their buildings, they've got a real mix between the leaseholders and their tenants. And it's how you satisfy both of those people um, and you know, the benefits that the wholesale improvement brings. And I think it's, it's for those living on the top floor in particular is what level of disruption are they going to get? You know, how noisy is it going to be? And as Arthur quite rightly said, we're looking at modern methods of construction to bring that that noise level down. One of the struggles 
that I think airspace is having at the moment is obviously the volume that is needed to put through the modular factory to bring the cost of it down, therefore to make it an affordable option to go on a roof. And then the other technical challenge of that is what can the building sustain because modular is heavier than, say, a panelised system as well. So therefore, the least disruption is when you don't have to put an exoskeleton on the building, but can the building then support the weight of the, of the modular? So I, d- I don't know how Arthur's finding that technical challenge. Absolutely. There's a there's a technical disruption and then viability and affordability nexus or matrix that all gets uh, needs to be kind of played off against one another. What we found is that existing residents don't necessarily mind the scale of the development as long as it's been thought through in the way that we discussed up front in terms of making sure they're engaged fully and thought through in terms of that. We've um, recently got planning permission for a project was actually developing four new stories above an existing three-story building, so greater massing above than exists underneath. And in terms of engagement on that, because we were able to um, demonstrate some very tangible benefits to the residents, a number of them actually wrote letters of support and spoke in our favour in terms of trying to uh, encourage that development rather than oppose it. And the the previous development that was on on that scheme was for one slash two stories um, that had been approved previously. And so actually more support for a bigger scheme, bizarrely, than for a, uh, what would be seen perhaps as a smaller scheme. Um, what we have found is that if you're building one or two stories, often you do, and, and it's not subsidised, um, so you're trying to deliver affordability as a standalone development, often it's um, you need to try and get greater volume, as Pip alluded to, in terms of through the factory and also in terms of economies of scale when you're actually going to site in order to be able to, as part of that, try and deliver affordable homes to the um, to the end user for the local authority or housing association in question. And so we typically um, try and look at developments which are minimum of two storeys, but also we've developed a podium system which allows us to circumvent an existing building's structure, services, access, and then also at the same time improve things like fire safety and be able to retrofit things like balconies and solar panels, whatever it happens to be. And that allows you to actually go from two storeys all the way up to as many as 10 storeys above an existing building. Um, so it's much closer to Typically, when people talk about rooftop development, I think they re- they're referring to architecturally a subservient um, uh, massing. So it's often one story or maybe one story step back, or perhaps the kind of kind of uh, you know wedding cake tiered system. And we're trying to look at this from a perspective of saying actually this, if we approach this boldly and ambitiously and with excitement, this is a new typology for the city rather than an apologetic mansard or an apologetic setback penthouse. And so really trying to kind of think of it in a slightly different way to the typical penthouse development or mansard roof development, which is, I think, unfairly where rooftop has been uh, pigeonholed in the past. So the rooftop development becomes the focus, almost the main feature, as opposed to an extension. Yeah, in in, in software terms, it's a feature, not a bug. It's trying to say, actually, <laughs> let's let's celebrate this. This is a we we recognise we're living in the age of the city. We recognise we're living in a climate emergency. We recognise there are, as Stephanie mentioned, huge constraints on land. As Pitt mentioned, constraints in terms of land pricing. So, you know, we're not living in you know 18th century Paris. We're living in 21st century London or you know big mega cities around the world. And how are we going to live? affordably, healthily, happily in these incredible cities that where people still, despite COVID, want to want to live? And how do we create new typologies for those uh, futures? 
I'm keen to hear Stephanie's um, kind of opinion on thoughts on how that could work in Southwark. But just before we jump into that, Arthur, you've also got the the 100 million um, key worker fund as well that you've been speaking to housing associations and local authorities. What response have you seen um, to that? And, and what does that say about, you know, the potential um, and how councils are feeling about rooftop development? Well, I think some credit goes to both Pip and, and Stephanie's work at Southwark in terms of laying the groundwork for a lot of this um, beforehand, because um, airspace development, as you mentioned in your, your piece the other day, Emma, has been kind of on the back burner for some time. And then, you know, due to Southwark's programme, there are a few other big ones around London and Apex's work. It's now increasingly part of the conversation. We um, have we actually launched Skyrim in 2018 with a white paper which spoke about delivering affordable, sustainable, beautiful homes for key workers. And at the time, everyone was kind of very interested in that as a model. But the question and the pushback we constantly got was, why are you, why key workers? What is a key worker? Who cares kind of thing? And I think one of the few good things that has come out of COVID is <laughs> I never get that question anymore. And even uh, the G15 last year published a report um, mirroring some of the language in our white paper called Homes for Heroes, um, talking about how we now need to rally together to deliver homes for our key workers, our heroes. Um, to, and give them the homes that they deserve because they're one of the few groups of people who have to live in the centre of cities for cities to function because a hospital doesn't work if your doctors and nurses don't turn up, a school doesn't work if your teachers don't turn up. So it's, it's, uh, they're one of the few truly geographically constrained professions. And one of the um, requests in the Homes for Heroes report was for funding and for government in particular to step in and try and fund this gap. Um, I'm still waiting for government to step in and fund this gap. But we basically uh, spoke to some of our um, investors and um, a number of them felt really strongly about this. We raised, um, it's not in the, in housing, it's not a lot of money, but we raised the £100 million Key Worker Homes Fund, which is a, uh, we see as a start and hopefully a rallying cry to say, actually, it doesn't have to always be public sector. It can be private sector who also come in and support and work with local authorities and housing associations. They've been doing this kind of <laughs> quietly behind the scenes for decades doing some amazing and hard work for it but as as Pip alluded to um COVID has really stressed um strained their bank balances and ability to access financing and so really kind of stepping in saying actually we're here as well there's a, another route in terms of funding and in particular the fund seeks to work at that really early stage of projects it's, it's often I'm so sure Stephanie can um add this is often relatively easy to get public funding once you have a project which has got planning, you've got a contractor lined up, you've gone through your framework, it's gone through your procurement, and it's essentially development finance to go, you know, an 18 month build to go and you know, 24 month build to go and deliver this thing that we know how much it's going to cost, where it's going to be, et cetera, et cetera. The hard part and the difficult part we've heard is challenging to fund is at that really early stage when it's, is there even a there there? Um, what building shall we do this on? Uh, what's the feasibility study? What does massing look like? Um, how are we going to afford a full-time uh, resident liaison officer? Um, it's that kind of, in, in architecture speak, RBA stage zero through to stage three, or you know, maybe even early stage four, that's often very expensive to fund because it's consultant fees, there's no return on capital yet. It's a difficult case for someone like Stephanie to stand up at her cabinet meeting and say, we're going to go and do this and spend X hundreds of thousands of pounds to do something which may not work. Um, and so we often, where we see the Key Work Homes Fund being most impactful is at that early stage and then it can also then provide the full development finance but often there are other routes that people prefer to go down with that and we actually we closed the fund we launched the fund in December 2020 and we closed it to applicants in 
April 2021 and we got some amazing applicants kind of several major London local authorities um, lots of both small and large housing associations um, and a, a really kind of a great level of, of interest throughout the sector so it was, it was fantastic to to be part of that and it's governed by a board of commissioners um, people like uh, Sadie Morgan people like uh, Baroness Kinnear uh, people like Rory Sutherland, people like Sir Steve Bullock. So some fantastic commissioners who are going to actually be overseeing applicants to the fund and helping select um, which which project should get that funding. The, the fund really has two sides to it. One is um, pro bono technical support. So essentially oh, yes. um, our team and some of our design teams um, time to essentially develop up and refine those applications. And then the second piece is the actual cash to go in and fund and bring those projects forward. Stephanie, what are you seeing on the how how is it possible to fund these? Is it a challenge? Would you like some more money to support that? <laughs> well, yes, it is a challenge, and yes, we'd always want more money. I I I feel you know um, with local authorities, it, it's a massive struggle because a lot of how we fund our new homes comes from. Um, obviously, we're really grateful to the Great London Authority and the funding they provide for it, but you know the vast majority of the funding we get we we use is from our housing revenue account, and that's a that's a self-financing account. And it's not just for building new homes. There, there are so many calls on the housing revenue account. So it's around, you know, the maintenance of our existing estates. It's about, you know, we we've got a massive district heating network um, in Southwark. You know, we, we we've got fifty-five thousand council homes, and seventeen of those are connected to the district heating system, of which many of them are sort of forty, fifty years old, and needs a lot of money invested in them to keep keep people, you know, with heating and hot water throughout throughout the year. Um, and also there's a whole with the climate emergency, it's the cost of decarbonising those because we have to decarbonise them at some point um, around that. So there's lots of calls and pressures on the HRA and building new homes is just part of that. So it really is about trying to move all the finance around and looking where we can get the money from. Um, so absolutely, if there's anyone in, in, from MHCLG listening to this podcast, please give local authorities more money to build new homes um, because we are building them. It, 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 it's really hard with, with what we've got. If we had more money, we could build more um, uh, around that as well. And, and, you know, as I said, we're building new council homes and their council homes to uh, council rents to, to let to people on our housing list um, as well. But I think coming back to what Arthur said around key worker housing, that is so important as well. Um, and I'm really pleased we've got a key worker housing policy. So we'll be working on our larger sites where we do have a mix of of, of council homes, but affordable homes. We're, I'm looking to see how we can make those affordable homes key worker homes at London living rent rather than sort of shared ownership um, around that. Because I think it's really, really important. I think, you know, Arthur mentioned we've seen the value that key workers provide for us. And, and they do deserve more than just a clap. They really do. And, you know, um, one of the things we can provide for them is really good quality housing and really truly affordable housing, not the definition of affordable, but really housing that's affordable for them as, as well. So actually, I think as things progress and as things develop, we'll see more key worker housing coming on as well. But in terms of coming back to airspace development at the moment for us in Southwark, it will, it will be all council um, rather than key worker, but we're looking at key worker on other sites. Okay, and what are your thoughts on those? It's a feature, it's not a bug, bigger. Um, I, I, the schemes that I've seen from Southwark, I think the largest one I've seen is maybe 20 flats. Um, so they ha they haven't been huge. They're not huge at the moment. And I think that goes back to the fact that we need to get residents on board. And, and I do worry at the moment, if we came, went to residents with, with 
you know, sort of turning a mid-sized or, or low-rise block into the equivalent of a tower block. I don't think we would get the, the, the you know, the buy-in or the, the yes from, from, in, from residents on that. So I think it's important to sort of, you know, I'm never saying never, and maybe in the future we will, but I think at this moment in time for Southwark, it's probably one or two stories is where we need to be at the moment, because if this is new for us. And we really need to make sure we get it right um, when we do it a, a, along the way at the moment. So at the moment, we are looking at smaller numbers um, around that. And I think that is the right way to go. I think there is scope elsewhere for, for larger um, larger things, as Arthur said. Um, but I just think for us in Southwark at the moment, it, it's really, you know, residents are wary about it. I think, you know, fire safety, building safety is for, at the forefront of people's minds as well on, on that. And I also think, Although it, the noise, the noise is the same whether it's one story or ten, isn't it? In, in that respect, but with people, more people were from home with COVID, that disruption to their lives um, and that noise disruption, it, it becomes more and more apparent to them as well. So I just think we need. I think I want to just to sort of have a really great scheme of rooftop homes of, of airspace development, but do it in a way that works with residents as well. Yeah, it was an interesting point actually on how to identify sites and, and Philippa, how do you go about identifying those sites on, and what's appropriate for different types of development? Well, I was going to say actually there's also, you know, thinking outside the box as well because, you know, rooftop development isn't just for above existing residential and I think with, you know, the demise of the office and the, and the high street, etc. and retail that, you know, one can look a lot more at uh, vertical mixed use and there's no reason why you couldn't have an, an office on the, the ground floor and then convert the rest of it and do upward extension and convert that to residential or build residential and we have looked at, at a few schemes like that um, and I think you know there's a lot of scope out there um, to change how we you know live work and play you know bringing in the, the high street more how we can bring life and energy back into that you know, bring people back to living in the, the town centres. You know, now people are working home, as you say, you know, why can't they then pop out for lunch like they would do if they were at the office, but doing so living in in, in local town centres, etc. So I think there's there's a lot of that to look at as well. And I think not only in the private sector, but, you know, the public sector also own a lot of offices. And I think, you know, a slight change in planning, you know, gone are the days, I think, of where one zones are map and colours it purple and blue. You know, why can't we look at, you know, as I said, the, the vertical mixed use and, and the angles that, that that brings and the opportunities. But then when it comes to, to looking at sites, as you say, I think with lots of the authorities and the housing associations to whom we are speaking, it's very much because they bring forward the buildings which are in the most dire need, you know, which are in need of some, some tender love and care. They need a new roof. There's been a lack of maintenance on them. So lots of the stock that is bought to us is comes about as a result of that, which is which is great. That's what we're here for. And rather than having to look at demolishing, rebuild, disrupting communities, you know, displacement, the the and energy that that embodies by knocking down, etc. You know, if we can not have to do that and regenerate the building as is, so much the better. And from our perspective. Um... Our approach is slightly different. So we see ourselves less as a developer, more kind of like a technology company and a provider of approaches to the sector. And so often we're kind of there to support the local authorities or housing associations existing pipeline, or if they don't yet have a pipeline, helping them uh, understand their portfolio in a different way. So we developed, uh, we got funding and support from Innovate UK, Ordnance Survey and HM Land Registry 
to develop a very snazzy sounding geospatial mapping technology. And that basically helps us survey a landowner's existing portfolio. Um, you'll be surprised how many don't fully understand what they've got already. Um, and then work out within that where the opportunities for airspace development exist. Often that is twinned with things like infill as well, um, but broadly kind of essentially the first exercise we often find with landlords, particularly non-residential landlords, people who might own estates that are yeah, either offices or a kind, of a, a kind of a portfolio of different types of asset classes. Um, and the first exercise is to help them understand what they've got and what the potential of that actually is. Uh, because often they don't know whether they could deliver, you know, 50 homes or 5,000 homes. And it's quite an important thing, particularly for public sector and for listed companies to really, you know, they're under public scrutiny to understand what they own. Then after that first exercise, we then move into um, more akin to a typical pipeline, which is identifying suitable buildings, undertaking feasibility studies on those buildings and then selecting and then, you know, triaging them within different priorities and then often client led in terms of what the, the priority is in terms of which should be developed first. And obviously, then there's a, you know, pref as Stephanie's found with their pipeline in Southwark, often it's better to start with the low hanging fruit, the inverted commas, easier ones. I don't think there's any, I think everyone would probably agree there's no such thing as an easy one, but easier um, or less technically challenging. And then from that, then, the, you know, proving it can be done and then from there developing through a, a pipeline. That's interesting. I mean, that was one of the points that I wanted to bring up as well. What are you all seeing um, from the, you know, the wider market and those less experienced landowners and developers? Um, there's been so much talk and kind of focus on the the PD as well. And, you know, by the sounds of things and, and from what I'm seeing, you know, the biggest schemes and a lot of your schemes are not coming through from permitted development. This is through the, the bigger planning applications. However, there is that mechanism to allow those less experienced developers um, and what do you anticipate will be the result of that? If you've got uh, a permitted development a right that allows you to put two stories on top of your building, are you seeing that there's a lot of inexperienced developers that are coming in because that's an easier yeah. route to market? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this is very much why we, we were at the forefront of setting up this association for exactly that reason, because it's a really new asset class. And local authorities and, and people to to trust you to develop you know they want you to prove track record well of course it's a new asset class nobody has a, a massive track record so in order to, to give them that assurance that you are going to be building to a high standard we, we needed some form of, of body to help govern and, and monitor this and start lobbying and really protecting the, the whole sector really you know the residents the, the authorities the developers and maintaining those high standards and the betterment for, for all, all stakeholders. And I think also to, to lobby and help promote the, the planning side of things as well. And I think the trouble with PDR is it's there's not much clarity around it and, and not much is getting approved through PDR, not as much as people think, because there needs to be a positive consideration of them. And where normal planning policy has the guidance that, that people can judge an application by, that there's no guidance to assist with councils on PDR. And I think that that's a big issue. And, you know, everybody wants, you know, certainty, clarity and speed when it comes to delivering a project. And at the moment, it's slightly in limbo land. So I don't know about Arthur, but I think we are about to do our first scheme through PDR. But other than that, it's going through a, a full application process. And that's a lot to do with 
the council not necessarily wanting to make the decision through PDR, but also when you are carrying out works to the existing building as well, where does that sit within that planning application? Because it won't form part of the PDR. So I think that for those smaller developers out there who, who don't have as much experience, you know, as Arthur said, it's it's the years of experience that sit behind the work that actually we're doing now. And it's those lessons learned. And we are slightly more technology companies than we are perhaps developers. You know, we've had to build up a real team of consultants with a specialist of expertise. And I, I would really question a developer who doesn't have that kind of consultant team that they've lived and worked with for a long time in order to to learn off the experiences that, that have been gained from what's been developed so far. Sometimes with smaller developments, what you'll see is they, they don't and they don't engage. And even if I look at take my sort of cabinet hat off and put my ward councillor hat on, there have been small developments in my ward which have gone to planning without even as ward councillors us being approached about it from, from, from the developers as well. And I think it goes back to what I said earlier is that, you know, you need to bring residents with you and do it with them, not to them um, around that. And my worry about some of the smaller schemes is if, if, if that consultation doesn't happen, that you end up with um, a lot of people with no recourse to actually object and it may be that things still go through planning but people do like the, the, the recourse to be able to make an objection and be heard at the planning committee hearing which PDR doesn't give them that as well and, and I do think you know there is a, a there is something to be said about allowing people to be able to articulate how they feel about something that's happening in in their local area um, regardless of what the outcome may be um, and it may be in some cases they do influence the outcome because they, their objections are really sound objections around that. But people do want to have their voices heard. And, and I do sometimes worry with permitted development rights that it takes away that, that voice of the community. Yeah, there's a there's definitely that kind of democratic piece in terms of the planning system, whilst bureaucratic does have a lot of value in terms of making sure everyone is at least has the opportunity to get involved at different stages of it. Um, our view in terms of PDR is, is not hugely positive about it as a specific right because for, for two reasons. One is that um, PDR in and of itself, um, as we've seen in other examples of it, often, not always, but often results in really substandard types of development and um, attracts certain types of contractors and developers to that sector. And unlike, say, an office to resi conversion, we have found that rooftop and airspace is very complex and has a whole bunch of technical safety structural risks that come with it and therefore when we were consulting with MHCLG and the chief planner and others on it our advice was this is not a uh, something that we would value or recommend for the sector the positive that we've seen from it is that i think it is a signaling move in terms of direction of travel and that direction of travel is both signaling to uh, local authorities and housing associations and landowners saying guys, have you thought about this or look up as kind of number one? And then also to planning officers on the ground saying this is a move that central government is trying to um, develop. And then the whole kind of um, thesis that sits behind that in terms of compact cities and the 15 minute city and trying to move towards a other forms of incremental density. And so the specific of PDR Skyrim are not supportive of um, because of the nuances and challenges that come with it and off, not always, but often the substandard design quality and lack of democracy that Stephanie alluded to. Uh, but overall, I think 
local and central government is really trying to make uh, rooftop development and airspace development happen. But I could I could imagine, and I think this is why something like ARAD is so exciting, but I could imagine there being a bit of a um, fragmentation of the industry into uh, larger players with technology, with consultancy teams who are working uh, with really high quality clients, thinking long term strategically about how this can be done to the, you know, the A plus fantastic developments. And then smaller companies who are looking at kind of knocking up a one, two, three, four flats, um, maybe with PDR, maybe not, but just trying to kind of get it done, turn them into two million pound penthouses and then sell them to the highest bidder kind of thing. And I could see that being, let's call it short termist and long termist approaches to this. I think if the long termists can win and really set the tone with amazingly high quality community engagement, long term planning with really credible and in heavily invested clients and partners and fantastic technology and consultant led teams, I think the sector's got an amazing future, but but it's ours to lose. I think that we need to make sure that we keep talking about this long termist approach and putting residents at the, the centre of it. I, I think you're right there, often It is, you know, I think we all, we've all said um, it is about putting residents at the centre of it. I, I sort of feel sometimes, um, you know, I think the vast majority of people who will develop airspace development do it for the right reasons. But I think with permit development rights, it does let those ones slip through where, for example, someone may use it to to um, sort of not meet their affordable housing commitments. So they may have a, a, a block that they built with eight properties, for example, which meant they didn't need to provide any social housing or affordable housing and then go through PDR to provide more than 10 and none of those will be affordable housing. And and and, and that, I think, is, is a, a bit of a loophole that needs to be addressed around that because through the planning process, they would need to. With PDR, they wouldn't or they yeah. can get away with it. Following on from what Arthur was saying in, you know, this sort of looking forward, how do you see the sector evolving? What do you see coming over the next year? I think there, there will be more local authorities and housing associations um, looking at, at rooftop development, because if we are going to provide the level of, of social and council housing that is needed, it is part of the solution. You cannot do it just by building from the ground upwards um, around that. So I do think it will become more of a solution for a lot of people um, around that. So I can see it evolving and progressing. And I can actually see the industry, um, you know, some of those larger players in the industry actually having having the wearable and, and, and sort of the foresight to, to look at what is possible and what isn't possible um, around that. I, I just think, you know, we are in a housing crisis. Um, you know, I've just given Southwark's example, but you can multiply that by all the other local authorities in London um, to, to look at what the housing need is in, in terms of council housing um, and, and social housing. So I, I do think it is a, a solution and an option that more and more local authorities and housing associations will, will take on board and consider as part of that overall solution. Yeah, and I think from, from my point of view, as you say, it's the acceptance of, of airspace as an asset class in its own right. Um, and as Arthur quite rightly pointed out, you know, there will be those of us who are in it for the long term who, you know, want repeat business. So therefore, we'll make sure we do a decent job. And I think, you know, at the heart of our business and Arthur's business is very much the need to deliver affordable homes. You know, that's why our CEO started the business in the first place. We've got funding from the GLA. So we're very much passionate about delivering the affordable homes for all. And I think but one thing that I would really like to see is... I suppose the the GLA and the local authorities and government all just working better together, as Arthur said, to help overcome the initial working capital, you know, and and 
to join up with the linking of the documents as well, because if one local authority is happy with, you know, a certain risk with the GLA, you know, why isn't then another local authority and not having to reinvent the wheel every time you come to a negotiation? And I think therefore will help with the actual delivery of the homes, because often, you know, it's the, let's call it the preamble that, that can take months. It sucks up an awful lot of money um, before we can actually then get on and deliver. So I think it's the acceptance of what risks they are, what's involved with them, what those mitigations are, and how there can be one kind of suite of documentation that, that everyone can work with together, and therefore the focus can actually be on the delivery of the homes. Thanks again to my guests, and thank you for listening. You can head to egi.co.uk for more coverage on this later this week, and expect more as the debate continues. While you're there, you should also check out EG's recent BTR special. This is the first time we've ever done anything like this, and it's actually something I've been working on with EG Radius researchers and industry leaders for the best part of half a year. While it's fair to say commercial real estate may have taken a beating during the pandemic, residential investment, and specifically build-to-rent investment, has soared. ET tracked 4.7 billion in transactions during the 12 months to the end of March. That's more than double the previous period and funding for more than 16,000 homes. In this special, we dig into the data, looking at the biggest deals, the new investors and asking the industry what next. In a second report, we reveal the 11 billion planning pipeline that developers have been working up over the past year with new skyscrapers, shopping centre regenerations and emerging markets. The special also includes interviews with Real Stars Ryan Prince. I actually went into central London. It was very exciting. Argent related's Tom Goodall, Granger's Helen Gordon, and Will Gibby from Federated Hermes Hestia Business. That's all on the website. Or if you're old school like me, you can also order a copy of the magazine to see the 30-page supplement in all its glory. <laughs>